make your presence, make us more aware of your presence here today as Pastor Scott brings the message and just open up our ears to hear what you want us to hear from you today in your name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you. So Amber and I did something that no one wants to do this weekend, all right? A little bit of Friday, a little bit of Saturday. We went into the garage. We pulled down the, I don't know if you have these, pulled down the stairs into the attic, and we together tackled the mess of the attic. And, and uh, the allergy meds are being taken this weekend for sure because of all the things, and and it's quite a task, but it feels so good to get all that stuff gone and cleaned up, whatever, but it was a task. Now, when you walk through the attic, if, if you haven't had a buildup of this yet, maybe sometime in life you'll get to that point where, where, you know, the kids are older and we walk up and we see these things from when they were younger and there's some nostalgic moments. Then, then there are times when um, Scott gets in trouble because, like, I put stupid things in the attic I never should have and I just was, you know, I thought I was doing good, but, like, why do we still have this? Like, this is trash. Like, you know, it's all the things, right? Um, well, when we were going through, one of the things that I saw was something from the past that I knew at the time that I really wanted. I really wanted it. It was one of those, like, you've ever seen those massage chair back things you put in the seat and it's got like a remote and it's got those little, uh, those heart, it goes up and down, and it's got heated and you're just thinking like, oh, I'm going to feel so good. I'll just put this in the seat. I'll sit and I'll be like, Oh man, like I'm so relaxed. You know what I mean? Like, and, uh, well, I found that at some point in my life, the, I really wanted that. So it's up in the attic. It never got used. And um, so we keep going and we find other things, but it was about maybe 30 minutes later. You know what I also found? A second massage chair that at some point I also told myself that I absolutely needed this in my life cause, uh, because of the stress and, um, you know, all the things that. And it also didn't get used. And I wasn't planning on even bringing that up. Like, you know, I always try to talk something at the beginning. Like, this just happened yesterday, and I'm thinking to myself, what you're talking about Sunday, Scott kind of goes with this, that there, there are things, humanity does this, there are things that we think we really want, think that we, we really are looking for, but it's right there in front of us, and even we have the chance to use it. And I didn't use that thing even one time. And this is going to go with our story a little bit today. See, we're going to continue this, um, the God of series. If you're new with us today, since the beginning of September, we've been talking about this idea of the God of, and the September was the Old Testament. It went through different places, and what I've been saying is the mountains, valleys, sticks, and stones, right? And went through the Old Testament of God showing his power and his love and his lessons he wanted people to teach, and then, and, and, and then in October, we've been going through the same thing, but in the New Testament with Jesus, seeing how God has worked, and, and specifically how Jesus has worked. Well, in the second week, it was, or the third week, it was the mountain valley sticks week and we looked at how god used the burning bush to speak to moses well i've got another stick moment okay but it's in jesus's life you want to follow with me we're going to go mark chapter 11 today okay so if you've got your bibles got your phones you can use those too if you need a bible there's one under the seats but can we jump into mark chapter 11 and see how that even closely makes sense to Scott in the massage chair I never used. All right, let's look at it together. Mark 11, we're going to go 12 through 21. Can I read it with you? The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. 
When he received it, he found nothing but leaves, because it, has, it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out uh, those who were buying and selling there. He turned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written... My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they went out, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Let's stop there. There is a lot to this story, okay? And before we get to the details of the text, let me give you a few just nuggets. Sometimes people like these little context or background nuggets. This is the gospel of Mark, right? Mark was a scribe. Mark was not one of the first apostles. And he was a scribe, many people believe, for Peter. And so people believe that this gospel is potentially sourced and spoken to by the apostle Peter, which many people think maybe this would be the gospel of Peter. Little nugget. The second thing, the second thing is that the first 10 chapters of this gospel are talking about 38 months of Jesus' life. 38 months. Chapters 11, which is the turn we made today, 11 through 16, is just on one week, the final week of Jesus' life. Why do I tell you this? This should tell us why this is so important. If you spend 10 chapters to talk about 38 months, then you spend these next 11 through 16 to talk about one week. There are some things that happen in this text, this moment, that we need to pay attention to. Now, this story on the surface may not seem to go together. Now, we've got the, the fig tree moment, then we've got the temple moment, and we can be very tempted to, and I have seen this, and it's fine, whatever, but tempted to separate this into parts. But if we separate this text into the parts, then I think we miss what Mark is trying to say holistically with this story. Because remember, the writers of the Gospels are, are almost making their argument, or they're putting out their belief of why Jesus is the Messiah, and then how that played out, how he made that clear throughout his life. So, how I see this story is basically one story, but three different scenes, okay? It's one story, three different scenes, kind of like you go to a play, and you've got this, this story for the night, but it's broken into sections. And so, how I'm going to break this story down today is three sections. I'm going to call them the curse, the temple, and the death of a fig tree. The curse, the temple, the death of the fig tree. And with that being said, okay, you've got some background stuff. Let's jump into the curse, all right? 
And once again, Jesus is in his final week before his death and resurrection. And this is a very intense and heated week in his life. And Jesus and the disciples are walking from, it says, a town uh, called Bethany. All right, Bethany is about two months from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. With the terrain, it would be about a 40-minute walk for them to make this walk. We know that Jesus knows at least three people in Bethany. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. People think he's probably staying with them in that town. And the story begins with Mark telling us that Jesus is hungry. Now, the natural thing when someone is hungry and they're walking along this road, for, for Jesus at least, he would see a fig tree and he would pluck a few of them off and just eat them. Fig trees were essential to the daily life of a Jewish person, both for nutrition and for economics. Fig trees were talked about over 50 times in throughout Scripture. Places like this, 1 Kings 4.25. It says, During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel from Dan to Beersheba lived in safety and everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. We have verses like this all through Scripture that fig trees were an important part of people's lives. When life was good, you could be sitting under the tree, you would have shade, and you would be able to have food, and, and life is really good. So here's Jesus walking to Jerusalem, and he walks by a fig tree, okay? And the tree, kind of, I think I have a picture here, of what just a, a fig tree, this is the fruit that would be typically on that. Jesus would be walking by, and you, you would... You would like I said, take a couple off and eat them. But this story actually can be a little confusing. Because Jesus is hungry, and as he goes to pick off some figs from the tree, he sees that there are no figs on it, only leaves. Now, this is the confusing part. It says, no figs were on it. Why? It wasn't the season for it. So why would Jesus get upset that there are no figs available? Here's my belief. I don't think Jesus is kind of taking like a tantrum. And this may you think, like, of course he's not. There are commentaries that write, this shows the human side of Jesus, that he would be mad that he wouldn't get the food. And it's like, oh, this Jesus just like us. And I'm like, I don't believe that at all. I don't believe Jesus is what we would talk about, which I know you've experienced. He's not hangry, right? Like, Jesus isn't hangry. This is not his hangry moment in the, in the New Testament. I think Jesus is using this moment to make sure the disciples understand a concept for something that's going to happen in the future. That it may not be the season for figs to be in their fullness, but... There should have at least been buds on these trees. Signs of fruit to come. Sometimes people had actually eaten these buds and they wouldn't be as good and not as nutritious, but there's something to eat. And Jesus walks up to this tree and there aren't any even signs of fruit. No buds, just leaves. So this fig tree had the appearance of goodness, had the appearance that it had 
produced what it was created to produce. The fig tree looked good, but as you get closer, you realize nothing is growing on it. And this is where I want to make sure you get this idea that Jesus was making. The fig tree has the right appearance, but there is no fruit growing from it. Jesus makes something very clear to these disciples in this conversation. The fig tree had the right appearance, but there was no fruit growing from it. So Jesus speaks a curse over the tree where the disciples will see and hear it. And it's end of scene one. And we move on to the temple. Okay, move on to the temple. In Jerusalem, at this time, they would be celebrating in Jerusalem, at the temple, the, the festival or the feast called Passover. There would be hundreds of thousands of people that would have been in Jerusalem at this time. And their purpose was one thing. They're going to come and worship God at the temple. Now, Jesus is obviously passionate about the worship of God. He's passionate about the temple. And as he walks in, he becomes fiercely angry about two things, two primary things. The first one is that worshiping God had become secondary for these people who ran the temple. Now, you've probably heard this before, but it's worth repeating again. People had turned this place of worship into a place of self-ambition. Money. Money. People were coming from all over the world. This was a big moment for them. For some people, this was the one and only time they would ever make the trip to Jerusalem to worship God in the actual temple versus their local synagogue. This is a long trip. So they couldn't probably bring their own animal sacrifices, or two, they wouldn't even know if they would have been accepted as pure animal sacrifices. So they come and they have to buy those from the temple. But not only would they have to buy these from the temple, they would probably be bringing in their own currency from where they came from. So now they have to buy the temple currency to buy the temple sacrifices. Now this is actually a good plan. Because it brings the currency into to one place and makes it easier to be able to make this happen. The problem was the extortion. The problem, it seems, is that people were getting robbed in their desire to worship, and they can't do anything about it. The place of worship had become corrupt. Now God had become a product just for their benefit, instead of the one that's to be honored in their worship. And over and over, throughout the Old Testament, prophets would speak to this about Jerusalem, about the Israelite people losing their way and doing this with their worship. Jeremiah 8. Jeremiah 8, you'll see a place. 5 and 6, it says, Why then have these people turned away? Why does Jerusalem always turn away? They cling to deceit. They refuse to return. I've listened attentively, but they do not say what is right. None of them repent for their wickedness. Say, what have I done? Each pursues their own course like a horse charging into battle. And Jeremiah now continues to write down a bunch of things that they continue to do. And he ends in verse 13. 
Uh, this is from God. I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There'll be no grapes on the vine. There, there'll be no figs on the tree. Their leaves will wither. What I've given them will be taken away from them. And the question as I read that, with the story that's in front of me, is this actually one of those moments that Jeremiah prophesied about of God's message to his people? Worship had become secondary. God had become a product. The second thing is they were dishonoring the Gentiles' place in the temple, okay? This one's really important, actually, to me, and it should be really important to you. See, the temple is broken up into uh, some sections, and maybe you've seen some of this before. Maybe you've heard of the Holy of Holies. It's where the Ark of the Covenant sits, and it's where the presence of God, and only one priest a year, or one, one priest, he may have one time to go into this place, and they tie the rope to the ankle. You maybe heard those stories before. Well, you can see the, um, the, the picture, and it's, it's small, I get, but um, at the very bottom, you'll see, it says, the court of the Gentiles. The place where they were selling sacrifices, the place that had become the den of robbers, believed to be in this court of the Gentiles. And it's almost like they were looking down. The Jewish people were looking down on these Gentiles. And once again, declaring that it's not really about you. The worship of God is for us. But the problem is, Jesus is about to change a bunch of stuff because this was never God's intent. Now, I want to bring you back to a conversation that he had with a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman who was struggling to understand how was she ever going to be able to worship God. And he speaks to her in this. He's saying, pretty soon, the temple is not going to be needed. Pretty soon, you'll be able to worship because worship is from the heart. That you will be able to worship in spirit and in truth because worship is going to be for everyone. And, and, and you see this moment. Have you ever watched The Chosen before? You'll see this woman, it just, a light goes off and you're like, I'm going to be able to worship God because worship is for everyone. Isaiah declares this, chapter 46. Chapter 56, actually, verse 4, he says, For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give them with them a, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than the sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bid themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who will fast on my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer." Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on the altar. And see if you remember this line. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus said this. And so I look at this story, this moment in the temple. Jesus is flipping tables because they've turned him into a product. They've turned, they, 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 their, their worship has become impure. And the second thing is he's flipping tables because I think he's flipping the structure and the intent and who can worship and who can worship him. Jesus was changing everything. In which as a Gentile, like I said, just like you, this is a big moment for the rest of history. End of scene two. Let's go to the third. 
the death of a fig tree. The death of a fig tree. I think of this moment, it's just a couple of verses there. I think of this moment as very simple and concise. When the disciples saw that the fig tree had withered away, I believe it was supposed to remind them of one simple concept. What Jesus says will always come true. They see it right there in front of them. What Jesus says will always come true. See, many people believe, I think I believe, that actually a prophecy in Hosea is maybe even talking about this moment at the temple. Can I read that for you in Hosea chapter 2? Hosea chapter 2, it says, I will stop all of her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, and all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees. I tell you, fig trees is all through Scripture. Jesus, in this moment, is actually stopping this festival. It says that people stop. I mean, they're, they're amazed by his teaching. He won't let people through with bringing the, 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 the sacrifices into the temple that they bought. I mean, Jesus has stopped this. So the disciples see, as they walk by this fig tree, the lesson that everybody needs to know is that Jesus always backs up what he says. And I think he, what he's showing them here is, where there is no fruit, something is wrong. When there's just the leaves, but not the fruit, just the appearance, something is wrong. Something is wrong in the roots, and the tree is not going to survive. And this is a foreshadowing of what is going to come for the people of Israel. And you see at the end of the story here, then, the, the religious people, they get mad. And I get why they get mad. You get mad. He's changing everything about their worship. He's telling them they're doing something wrong. He's throwing them under the bus. I mean, I would get mad too. And this is when the, the, the religious people turn that heat up. They, they, the intensity goes up and goes, we've got to do something. We've got to get rid of this guy. We've got to kill this man, Jesus. And do you think this was a surprise to Jesus? Nah. This was a moment that he knew was coming for a long time. You've had these prophecies. He knows why he's come. This was part of the plan of redeeming the world. This was part of the plan to give people a true picture of who God was and his expectations for his people. This is the story of Mark 11. Mark 11 of the fig tree in the temple. Jesus is giving a warning Jesus is showing his disciples of what happens when, we, when, when he is rejected. And he's warning them of what it's like if you're somebody who has the appearance and the, 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 the look of having fruit in your life, but it's not actually there. He's giving the warning to them, but of course this is where we turn the corner and we go, okay, what's this say about me? Should this be a warning for me? Should this be a warning for us as his church that we need growing fruit in our lives, not just to look the part? 
We need to have the elements of what Jesus was looking for figuratively in that fig tree, but what he wants for his people. And is there a problem when we look the part, but we don't actually have what's supposed to be produced? So the two questions I have this morning. One, how do how does that fruit get produced? How does that happen? And two, what does that look like? First, how does that happen? Very simple answer. But it takes a commitment. It's a very simple answer, but it takes a certain lifestyle change. The very simple answer is found in John chapter 15, and you will, you will know this passage as I read it. John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. You want the fruit of God in your life the way Jesus says it needs to be? It's two things. We abide in and surrender to Jesus through the Holy Spirit. It's very simple in concept but it takes a commitment of a lifestyle. I abide in and I surrender to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know why this needs to happen? Because you don't produce in your life. This may turn something for somebody. I was talking to a, a pastor friend, uh, John Quitt over at Hope City. We're talking about this a week. And he said, he, we were reminded that we aren't the producers of the fruit in our life. And many times, this is what we do. Like, I got to get better. I got to get better. I got to do more. I got to do. I got to become this. The calling on a life of a follower of Jesus is to abide in and surrender to. And then he produces the fruit in our life. For some, you have been taught a very, like, moralistic way to follow Jesus, that I need to get all these things right. Jesus says, abide in me, then the fruit will be produced. And we want to know why this isn't happening. I, my quick and simple question is, how often do you abide in, and to what level do you surrender to? In the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how it's produced. But what would that look like? The second question? Well, there's a lot of things. I would say fruit in our life would show the work of God. A lot of things that would come in play if John 15 played out in our lives that we consistently abided in, we consistently surrendered to. But I'm going to give you five things that in my life I want to make sure happen all the time, okay? that I want to make sure are growing in my life all the time. This is personal to me, so you do with it as you will. The first thing, the first fruit of abiding in is that I will believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And you go, okay, that's basic. Is it? I mean, it's the foundation for things. Do I believe that Jesus is the Messiah? When I believe Jesus is the Messiah, things will change in my life. 
If I believe Jesus is the Messiah, I will go about life differently, right? Where I put my hope and trust will change how I live life, which goes that second one. Will I trust him with all parts of my life? The fruit of my life is I begin to trust more and more and more and more every day. I find myself, as I turn 43 this week, I trust Jesus more now than I did five years ago. That's a good thing, right? That's a good thing. I'm growing in my trust. My anxiousness is depleting or is, is, is going away compared to the peace that's growing in my life. And it's not because of something that I'm better at. It's my trust in Jesus is growing. As the fruit of my life, my abiding in and surrendering to, I will trust him with more areas of my life tomorrow than I did today. Third thing, there'll be evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in my life. And I'm going to remind you of this. Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I've told you this, maybe I don't tell you often enough, this is a metric for my life personally. This is very personal to me. Is it is Scott is being trusted? Scott is in control. Scott is where I'm truly surrendered to, that I, it's about me. I don't see the fruit of the Spirit growing in me. I see a lot of other things. I don't see peace. I don't see patience. I don't see kindness. I don't see gentleness. I don't experience joy. I'm not loving like I see a distinct difference in me when I'm surrendered in the fruit of the Holy Spirit growing in my life versus when it's me. I have to keep this on the forefront because to me it's a picture. It's a picture I can go, Scott, I see it in you. Like you're, you're, you're bulldozing through people. You're not patient with people. Like I, I can let my instinctive driving personality actually to drive right through people. The love and the patience and the joy and the pastoring side that I love actually comes from the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of Scott. This is when I'm at my best. As a human, as a husband, as a dad, and as a pastor, it's when the fruit of the Spirit are growing in my life. The fourth is I will love my neighbor. Jesus makes this clear. If you're going to follow me there's two things you love god and you love your neighbor is there evidence of the fruit of loving my neighbor which is often the person i don't agree with often the person that i am that i'm that i'm struggling with often the person that i uh, do i love my neighbor is that growing am i sharing the good news of jesus if you're new this will be your first time but one hope you know where this comes from is you walk out either through the cafe or the main lobby and you see 1 Peter 3.15 every week. You know what was behind the name change of One Hope. That we need to be prepared for at all seasons to give a testimony of the, where we find our hope. We do this with gentleness and respect, but we are always ready to share hope. And, and one of the things is, is for you in your life, one of the fruits of, of, of God working in you is that you want to share about Jesus. 
And the sad part of our lives is we can follow Jesus and say we love Jesus and we can worship Jesus on Sunday, but when was the last time you really shared who Jesus was to you? When was the last time you saw someone who was struggling and you're like, you have got to come to church with me because you've got to be around people who love Jesus. You've got to hear about Jesus, that your hope is found in this place. We go about life every day and there's a whole bunch of things that we pay attention to, but we don't share the good news of Jesus. Is that fruit real in your life? Are you so consumed about other fruit that you want to produce that the story of Jesus is not evident? Not coming out through you. Is there evidence of God-produced fruit in your life? And so I'm going to repeat these in a different way. Maybe Jesus would ask us this today. Today, will you believe in me? Today, Will you trust me? Today, will you surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Today, will you love your neighbor? Today, will you share who I am and what I've done for you? Those are things that I always want to look at in my life. You can have your own list. You have your things. You have your own weaknesses. You've got your own stuff. But is the evidence of the work of God in your life through the fruit that's being produced? If not, then I'm not going to push you to a certain action. Hear me. I'm not going to push you to acting differently. Where am I going to push you? to abide in him more and surrender more to him. Jesus does not ask us to change ourselves. He asks us to give ourselves to him. Back to the beginning on those stupid massage chairs. I wanted those for some reason. I just never used them and they end up in an attic and then we just give them away because they just didn't serve a purpose in my life. Here's why I told you. The Israelites were looking for a Messiah for years and years and years. They were looking for a Messiah, and he came. They had him right in front of them. It's like they put him in an attic and go, that's not really useful in my life. And Jesus then declares... Like, this is what's going to happen. If you're not going to be connected to me, you're going to wither and you're going to die. You're not going to be connected to me. There's no fruit that's going to be produced. This was the story outside of Jesus. And he's right there, ready to be part of their life, and he's rejected. And today, that has to be asked of us. He's right there in front of us, but we reject him. Now, I will say this as a very southern Bible Belt culture, we may accept Jesus as a Savior for our life for eternity, but we do not accept Him as our Savior for today. This is the problem we have. 
Do you believe him to be your Messiah for everything today? Do you believe him enough to trust him for what you need today? Do you, will, you, will you allow yourself to believe in him so the fruits of the Spirit can come in and change your life? Will you believe in him so much that you will love people the way he loves them? Will you believe in, 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 and be so about him that you will just share the story of who he is in your life and why people need the hope of Jesus? Will you walk this out in your life? My biggest fear for us as a church is that we look good at 9 o'clock and at 1045. We look good in our small groups. We look good when we do Love Week and when we do Christmas offerings and we just give ourselves away through service. Like, we look good in all these church things. But it's a bunch of leaves but no real fruit being grown. Is there evidence of that in your life? Would Jesus be upset? He comes by and goes, oh, it's just leaves. So this is the ask today. Is he... Is he the center through our life? Do people get to see more of him? And is there fruit under those leaves the way he's called us to? So you bow your heads today. You have to ask yourself that question. I have to ask myself this question. I tell you all the time that all week long I have to wrestle with these things you only have to wrestle for 35 minutes but I'm asking you to wrestle with it for right now is the evidence of God's work in your life there if not where do you need to surrender where's the abiding need to come into play so Heavenly Father if there's anybody watching or listening right now anybody in this room right now that truly doesn't believe your son Jesus as the Messiah, I pray there would be a change of heart. And there would be a moment where there's, as scripture tells us, just to repent and ask for forgiveness. Say, Jesus, forgive me and I give my life to you. You're the Messiah. Thank you for saving me. God, maybe there's someone today that doesn't trust you with a certain aspect of your, their lives. And then to give that to you, you speak that specifically right now. God, maybe people do what I do, and there's a metric of the fruit of the Spirit, and when they look at their life, they're like, nah, there are some things missing. God, I pray that they would lean into you so that you would begin to bear that fruit. God, if there's a hardness of heart that we're not loving our neighbor the way Jesus did, God, that you would show us who we need to see as you see them. God, I pray that you put a strong, heavy conviction on us. That we should not walk a day in our life without sharing where our hope is found. Because this city, our friends, our family need to know where hope is because people are crumbling around us. And they may know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. They may know about hope, but they don't know what hope feels like. 
And God, may we feel deeply convicted when we live our life every day using you as a benefit, but not worshiping you with our life. So God, do a work in us, and may you be magnified in everything that we do because of what you're producing in us. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Will you stand and worship as we end here? And just my challenge is as we leave, we make those commitments and walk out different than we began. Suddenly articulate 